A jury in Washington, D.C. has convicted the former chair of the Proud Boys and three other of seditious conspiracy. That gives the Justice Department a key victory in this January 6th probe. The significance is coming up. Today is Thursday, May 4th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also ahead, Ukraine appears on the verge of launching a counteroffensive, hoping to take back the territory that Russia has occupied. But one Ukrainian official is hoping for even more. Elon Musk is promising that SpaceX's newest rocket will one day take humans to Mars. But it's costing the company billions of dollars to develop. Until Starship is flying and the development costs are down and it's generating revenue instead of consuming cash, it'll be a challenge for them. Are SpaceX's goals just too lofty? These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Four members of the far-right group Proud Boys, including its former leader Enrique Tarrio, have been convicted of seditious conspiracy in connection with the pro-Trump rights at the U.S. Capitol more than two years ago. The Civil War-era charges rarely use. It is the most serious offense to come out of the January 6th attack. Senate Judiciary Democrats say they may have run out of options to address growing ethics concerns facing the Supreme Court. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports this comes after a ProPublica news story documenting that a Republican billionaire donor also helped pay private school tuition for a relative to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin says it's up to the Supreme Court's Chief Justice to address the growing conflicts. The key to this is Chief Justice Roberts. He alone has the authority and the power to change the ethical standards of the court. Durbin said the panel cannot force a subpoena for GOP mega donor Harlan Crow to appear, in part because the panel is missing a key Democratic vote with California Senator Dianne Feinstein still out due to illness. Durbin also does not expect to ask Justice Thomas to appear, saying there is no historical precedent for the panel to force a sitting Supreme Court justice to testify. Claudia Rizales, NPR News, the Capitol. The Kremlin's accusing Ukraine of launching drones in an attempt to assassinate President Vladimir Putin, but U.S. intelligence chiefs say it's unlikely Russia will retaliate with nuclear weapons despite escalating tensions. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin. During a Senate Armed Services hearing, intelligence officials expressed skepticism that Russia would use nuclear weapons during the war in Ukraine. Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines said the intelligence community has concluded that scenario is very unlikely. However, officials are watching escalating rhetoric from Moscow, including accusations that Ukraine launched drones to attack the Kremlin. Ukraine has denied those accusations, but Haynes says the intelligence community doesn't yet have evidence to independently verify what happened. Even so, it's unlikely President Putin was at real risk, as the drones were small and Putin does not reside within the Kremlin building, Haynes confirmed. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. Darling, I- a New York jury is siding with singer-songwriter Ed Sheeran, deciding his 2014 hit, Thinking Out Loud, did not unlawfully copy Marvin Gaye's classic 1970s hit. Let's get it on. The jury found the heirs of Ed Towns and the songwriter of Let's Get It On failed to prove copyright infringement. Sheeran addressed reporters outside the courthouse today. These chords are common building blocks which were used to create music long before Let's Get It On was written and will be used to make music long after we are all gone. Sharon said during his trial that the copyright claim was a threat to all musicians who write their own songs. This 
is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. One person is still missing after an explosion at a Newburyport pharmaceutical plant. The blast happened early this morning at the sequence PCI synthesis. Within the last half hour, crews have finally been able to enter the damaged area where the worker might be. They're now removing debris and searching for him. Here's WBUR's Yasmin Ammer. The missing worker is one of five who worked the night shift. Officials haven't given his name or exact location when the blast took place. This is the third safety incident at the plant since 2020. Mayor Sean Reardon says the company's operations are halted. We're going to expect a very thorough investigation. As you know, this company has had some incidents in the past, but they've been a great partner to work with here in New Report, and they work closely with the fire department. So this is a, a business that we're aware of, and uh, again, you know, they won't be working anytime soon, but we'll go through that investigation. Hopefully we get some answers about why this happened. Officials say no chemicals have been found in the air or water outside of the building. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. The city of Boston will use $16 million in federal money to build more housing for people in the city who are experiencing homelessness. The federal grant will also go toward providing support services to people who need them. This week, the city began to remove tent encampments erected by unsheltered residents near the intersection of Mass Ave and Melnia Cass Boulevard in the South End. In other news, dogs will soon be allowed at outdoor dining patios and beer gardens in Boston. The announcement came today from Mayor Michelle Wu that she will let those establishments apply to offer a dog-friendly space. She says it's one more step forward in making Boston a vibrant and family-friendly city. If the city gives an establishment permission, then diners could bring their furry friends with them as soon as the 1st of June. In the forecast, pretty gray for the rest of the day today. Still damp. Tonight, some light rain, plenty more clouds around temperatures in the mid-40s. Then tomorrow, cloudy to begin with. Sunshine for the second half of the day. Highs near 55 degrees. Could have some more sunshine and slightly milder temperatures ahead for the weekend. In Boston, now 46 degrees at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE, price and coverage match limited by state law. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. It was another tough day for banks on Wall Street as stock prices plummeted for a number of regional banks. A little later, we'll hear which banks have been hit hard and what that might tell us about the industry overall. First, though, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's name is once again in the headlines with Texas real estate magnate Harlan Crow. this time over a ProPublica investigation that found Crow paid private boarding school tuition for Thomas's grandnephew. Previous reporting by ProPublica in the last month has revealed a real estate deal and years of luxury travel that Clarence Thomas accepted but failed to disclose from Crow. But who exactly is Harlan Crow? Shelley Hagan has done some digging into Crow's background. She covers Texas politics and the economy for Bloomberg, and she joins me now from Dallas. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Anna. So we know that Harlan Crow is an incredibly wealthy businessman, and a lot has been written in recent weeks as well about his collections of historical artifacts, including Nazi memorabilia. But Beyond that, what can you tell us about Crow himself, as well as his reputation in the Dallas area community? Yeah, so Harlan Crow is the son of Trammell Crow, who you can see his name 
in buildings across Dallas. And he was reported to have been one of the largest landlords in the U.S. So Harlan Crow did grow up in a, a privileged family. He was born in Dallas. He, you know, is a prominent figure in the wealthy social circles in Dallas, but you wouldn't necessarily hear his name. He has a lot of influence. He is a big donor. He is a big philanthropist, but he doesn't come out publicly and speak, for example, among lawmakers or anything like that. Hmm. What about his company, Crow Holdings? Can you tell us about it? What does it do and how much is it worth? So Crow Holdings, um, it's basically a real estate empire that manages about $29 billion in assets. It has, for example, holdings in residential real estate properties, commercial real estate, warehouses, um, student housing. So he is very well known in the real estate world. The reason that we're talking about Harlan Crow today is, of course, because of his relationship with Justice Clarence Thomas. What can you tell us about that relationship? How did they come to know each other? How long have they known each other? Yeah, so Harlan Crow and Clarence Thomas met about 27 years ago. Um, Harlan Crow was in D.C. at the time, and he was talking with some executives at the National Center for Policy Analysis, which is a center-right think tank. And while he was speaking with the executives, they told him that Thomas was doing a speaking engagement in Dallas, and Crow, living in Dallas, offered to fly Thomas back home on his private jet. He said he didn't know Thomas at the time, but he said he found that while they were on the jet together and talking, they were actually similar. He's, his exact words were they were simpatico, even though both of these people came from very different backgrounds. Thomas has said he grew up in poverty in Georgia, and of course, Crow grew up in a very wealthy family. In the last month, these revelations about these big money transactions between Harlan Crow and Justice Thomas have prompted increased calls for ethics reform at the Supreme Court. But based on what you know, are there any cases involving Crow that have ended up before the Supreme Court, cases where there'd be a reasonable expectation that Justice Thomas would recuse himself? So there actually was one case where one of the companies associated with Harlan Crow did go up before the Supreme Court. And uh, Bloomberg News colleague actually uh, reported this scoop out a couple weeks ago. But it was a case where a architecture firm was suing a Trammell Crow residential, which is a firm that develops apartment buildings. And they were suing the apartment developer for allegedly misusing its designs, so accusing them of copyright infringement. But the court issued a one-sentence order and didn't have any recusal. So Thomas didn't recuse himself in this case. Based on your reporting on Crow, do you think that his relationship with the Thomas family and Thomas's lack of transparency on some of that relationship, do you think that means it's time to rethink ethics on the Supreme Court? I think there has been a lot of gray area in a lot of the relationships that Thomas had with Crow. For example, it was not his child that Crow donated money for education. It was actually his grandnephew. So in this case, Thomas could say that he didn't have to report that because it wasn't his dependent child. But that's just kind of a gray area where maybe the court's going to have to look closely at and, and try and reform so that justices in the future will disclose these. Shelley Hagan covers Texas politics and the economy for Bloomberg. Shelley, thank you. Thank you so much. The mental health epidemic facing U.S. teenagers is motivating an unusual group of senators to join forces. 
two Democrats and two Republicans, all parents of young kids or teens, say some first steps in keeping children safer online are limiting access to social media platforms and restricting the kind of content pushed out to teens. The group expects the tech industry to try to defeat their bill. But they say this bill and others show growing momentum in Congress to do something. NPR congressional correspondent Deidre Walsh sat down with the bipartisan group on Capitol Hill and brings us this report. Freshman Alabama Republican Senator Katie Britt is a mom of two teens. She says she heard from parents at her kids' track meet about the negative impact of social media. As I talk to other moms who are trying to deal with this, it tells you um, the, the troubling uncertainty that social media brings into children's lives. She says some apps are only ramping up anxiety among kids. I think all of us can look back to when we grew up and look at the challenges of being you know, a middle schooler or a high schooler. If you add the pressures of social media, you can see how, how quickly that could have a negative impact on children who are trying to learn and grow and explore and be. Britt and another conservative, Arkansas Republican Tom Cotton, teamed up with two progressive Democrats, Brian Schatz of Hawaii and Chris Murphy of Connecticut, on a bill they say will help shield kids from harmful content on platforms like Instagram and TikTok. If the four of us can agree on this, you know, who come from very different political and ideological backgrounds, I think there's real hope that this approach can get to the Senate floor and get 60 votes. That's Senator Murphy, who says their bill puts parents in the game to make sure their kids' data isn't accessed and used by tech companies. He saw the upsides for his two sons connecting online during the pandemic. But I've also seen the flip side. I've seen uh, amongst my kids' peers uh, how very quickly these algorithms can drive you to dangerous content, to content that is encouraging self-harm, that's making you feel shameful about your body image. Cotton says these companies make money off of keeping kids addicted. Social media is designed to feed uh, them exploitative content, stuff that's going to attract their eyeballs continuously, and in many cases, it's age-inappropriate. And he says this legislation focuses on helping parents gain more control. They just want the same power they have in the real world to extend to the digital world. Schott says it was surprisingly easy for the four to agree on a bill once they zeroed in on the severity of the problem. He pointed out that more than half of teen girls feel persistent despair and the spike in mental health challenges across the board. The legislation says you have to be 13 to get an account, must have your parents' consent, and it also blocks social media companies from using algorithms to distribute content to kids. Here's shots. These algorithms are probably more powerful than an adult's brain, but certainly more powerful than a developing child's brain. And their business model is to make kids linger. Some senators say this approach could put more onus on parents and less on the tech companies. Britt says the facts speak for themselves. Data doesn't lie. From 2011 to 2019, we more than doubled um, the, the feeling of depression amongst our teens. One in three young women in high school has said that she has considered suicide. And when you think about that, inaction is not an option. While other bipartisan efforts to tackle online safety are more focused on policing content and forcing the social media companies to be accountable, these four senators stress their bill's ban on the algorithm, the driver of the content, is what can protect vulnerable teens. Another key provision is requiring age verification before kids can create accounts, 
and setting up a system for parents to approve their kids signing up. Cotton stresses they take a flexible approach and use technology that companies already use for other applications. They could use third-party contractors of the kind that, say, the VA currently uses or states as politically diverse as Wyoming and California use. The important part is they cannot simply continue to use simple check-the-box attestations or the entry of a birth date, which are, of course, easily evaded. Some civil liberties groups argue collecting more data from parents about their kids could add to privacy concerns. Cotton dismissed those arguments. The data we're talking about here is your birthday, your birthday, stuff that many people put online voluntarily or that government agencies at your local, state, and federal level all have access to and know, and your parent-child relationship. That's it. Tech companies maintain they already have tools in place to police dangerous content for kids and say they constantly reevaluate them. A spokesperson for Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, told NPR that research from parents, teens, and academics shapes the protections they have in place, and they will work with policymakers on these issues. Congress doesn't have much of a track record passing legislation that regulates or restricts tech companies, but Schatz thinks the country is at a tipping point. Yes, it's true that every year someone proposes something in terms of tech policy, and every year the tech industry kills it. I do think this time is different because parents and even children are standing up and saying enough is enough. In the last week, two more bipartisan bills have been unveiled in the Senate to boost safety measures for kids online. They take aim at making the social media companies more accountable through new regulations on data collection, oversight by federal agencies, and bans on advertising. These four senators say the more, the merrier. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, The Capitol. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this cloudy, rainy Thursday afternoon. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR, days after the second largest bank failure in the U.S., there are signs that other regional banks may also be vulnerable. And in about five minutes, Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy trilogy concludes with the origin story of the shortest guardian. Bob Mandela's review is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by summer term at Boston University, offering convenient day, evening, and online scheduling with courses open to working professionals and lifelong learners. Study education, communication, business, project management, computer science, the arts, film and TV, languages, literature, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. Stocks closed lower for fourth day. The Dow lost almost nine-tenths of a percent. S&P fell about three-quarters of a percent, and the Nasdaq was down just about a half percent. The number of people filing unemployment benefits in the state is rising. Numbers out today show just over 28,000 people in Massachusetts filed jobless claims last week. That compares to just under 25,000 people the week before and about 16,000 people the week prior to that. Overall, the U.S. Labor Department believes Americans have strong job security despite rising interest rates and economic uncertainty. It's 419. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness, located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, now you can do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBR app. Download it at the App Store. 
A rainy and raw day is coming to an end. Clouds should hang in there overnight tonight, falling to the mid-40s. And tomorrow, the last of the clouds in the morning. Finally, some sunshine by the afternoon. Should be a nice day with temperatures in the mid-50s. 46 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Juana Summers. Ukraine appears on the verge of launching a counteroffensive to push Russian forces out of occupied land, using billions of dollars in weapons and ammunition donated by Western allies. President Biden has said that he wants to see a strategic defeat of Russia so that it's not able to wage war on its neighbors. NPR's Joanna Kakissis spoke with a top Ukrainian defense official who wants something even more ambitious than that. We've got Joanna on the line now. Hi, Joanna. Hello, Anna. So, Joanna, tell us a little bit about the official that you spoke with and why he is so important to Ukraine. So Alexei Danilov is the secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, and he says he's one of the five people on the planet who know about Ukraine's counteroffensive plans. Not even the Pentagon has access to those plans. We are not going to share any of our plans. We have several options to choose from, and our president will choose the best one based on the circumstances. Things like when to launch it, the resources they have. Uh, President Zelensky has said that Ukraine must have all the pieces in place, like enough ammunition, weapons, enough soldiers, anticipating what the Russian tactics will be. Uh, But Danilov says he's tired of Western reporters asking him about this counteroffensive, and he's also tired of some Western leaders placating Russian President Vladimir Putin. He says that resulted in Russia occupying and then illegally annexing the southern Ukrainian peninsula of Crimea in 2014, and Russian proxies occupying parts of eastern Ukraine the same year. And he says when the Russians launched the full-scale invasion last February, the West should have offered more upfront assistance. From the first day, we asked for a no-fly zone. Did everybody forget? Putin Putin behaves as you allow him to behave. Are you scared of him? We are not. We will fight, defend our freedom, defend our independence. We will chew at them until the end. He said that the Ukrainians would keep fighting Russian forces even if they had to do it with their teeth. Fight with their teeth. Joanna, that sounds pretty desperate to me. Well, one, it's not desperation. Uh, Mr. Danilov says it's determination. He and others have said repeatedly that Ukraine needs more weapons. uh, And that's because Mr. Danilov's idea of victory is very ambitious. Listen to how he describes it. The Russian Federation must cease to exist insofar as it exists today. This way it will cease being a threat to us and to all the neighbors around it. Our Western partners do not understand this. They are not preparing for the collapse of Russia, but we are. Joanna, what does he mean by the collapse of Russia? 
So Juana, before I answer that, I do want to say that we spoke to Mr. Danilov before the drone attacks on the Kremlin on Wednesday, which prompted Russian officials to accuse Ukraine of trying to assassinate President Putin. Now, President Zelensky and many other officials in his administration have strongly denied attacking Moscow, but they and Mr. Danilov have made clear that they, that they do not see any chance of peace for Ukraine with President Putin in power. Uh, Danilov is not satisfied with regime change, and as you heard, he wants to see a breakup of the Russian Federation. Joanna, did he elaborate at all on how he expects that that would happen? No, he did not elaborate. And military analysts say this is very unrealistic, that the very best case scenario for Ukraine is that it gets its land back. Uh, but Danilov explained why he feels so strongly. He told us that Ukraine has felt vulnerable since the West took away its nuclear weapons in 1994, that disarmament came in exchange for promises by Russia that it would respect Ukraine's borders. And he says that clearly has not happened. So he wants the West to hold Russia accountable this time around. That's NPR's Joanna Kakissis in southern Ukraine. Joanna, thank you. You're welcome, Juana. It's been almost three months since the latest Ant-Man film arrived in theaters, so critic Bob Mondello had a feeling it was time for another Marvel movie, and sure enough, it opens tonight, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3. We begin at Guardians headquarters, a deep space critter littered compound that feels like a junkyard shopping mall. The whole gang is there, but not wisecracking. Star-Lord Peter Quill's mooning over the green goddess who was once his girlfriend. Rocket, who you call a raccoon at your peril, is staring vacantly out a portal. Then something hurtles in and slams him against a wall. Gold-skinned Adam Warlock is here to kidnap Rocket, but only manages to mortally wound him before he's sent packing by Drax, Gamora, and others. I'm Groot. Rocket being left on life support lights a fire under our heroes who have to dig deep into his past as a medical experiment to save him when they're not distracted by their own concerns. Maybe if, if you open yourself up to it. I don't think so, Quinn. Quill. Quill. And distracted from the distractions. Well, what I'm trying to say is... Peter, you know this is an open line, right? What? We're listening to everything you're saying. And it is painful. And you're just telling me now? We were hoping it would stop on its own. But I switched it over to private. What color button did you push? Blue, for the blue suit. Oh, no. Blue is the open line for everyone. Orange is for blue. What? Black is for orange. Yellow is for green. Green is for red. Director James Gunn can keep this sort of thing going indefinitely, which partly explains the film's two-and-a-half-hour running time. But in fairness, there's a lot going on. A mad scientist. My sacred mission is to create the perfect society. Our heroes zipping off to multiple planets. We come in peace. Pursuing multiple storylines. Encountering a slew of new characters, all of whom need explaining. And with Rocket sidelined in a coma, we also get flashbacks to him as a cub. This is Rocket's origin story, actually. Someday, I'm going to make great machines that fly. And me and my friends are going to go flying together into the forever and beautiful sky. The plot is insane enough in a comics-inspired way that characters need to spout exposition every few lines. She was my girlfriend, only she doesn't remember it because it wasn't her. Because her dad threw her off a magic cliff and she died, and then I lost my temper and nearly destroyed half the universe. And she came back, out of the past. There she is. Everyone else who died in the past stayed dead. Not her. Why? Was it the magic cliff? I don't know. That's some freaking Infinity Stone scientist. You left out some important information, but that is the gist of it. 
As you'll have gathered, in the six years since the second Guardians movie, a lot has happened. Actors have grown into their roles. Doofus hero Chris Pratt, who used to crank up his Walkman and now sports an iPod, has matured from a wisecracking series of punchlines to an actual character. Cyborg Nebula's learning to tame her anger. Drax is showing a softer side, though not always. Kill anyone who gets in our way. No. Not kill anyone. Kill a few people. Kill no people. Kill one guy, one stupid guy who no one loves. Now you're just making it sad. The director has grown, too. James Gunn was dismissed from the Guardian series over inappropriate tweets in 2018. A year later, he'd earned back the studio's respect, which might be why there are real-world concerns being referenced this time, from the ethics of experimenting on animals to intellectual property issues. Outside the theater, we worry about whether AI chatbots will start thinking for themselves, the film worries about who will own an artificial intelligence that is thinking for itself. The AI? Its creator? And what about its feelings? Questions, no doubt, to fuel the next Guardians trilogy. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 25 minutes on All Things Considered, a look at the science news of the week, including a new study on what's called virtual reality sickness and whether there's any actual science behind the 10,000 steps goal. In sports, Celtics return to the court tomorrow night, but in Philly this time around for Game 3 of their second-round playoff series with the 76ers. The series is tied at one game apiece. Red Sox and Blue Jays wrap up their four-game series tonight at Fenway Park. First pitches at 6-10. The Sox have taken the first three matchups. Tonight's pitchers are Brian Bayo for the Sox and Kevin Gaussman for the Jays. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with Sister Act and Then There Were Nuns, a divine feel-good musical comedy through May 14th, lyricstage.com. And Rose Art Museum with Lyle Ashton Harris, our first and last love, an exploration of identity and legacy. Tickets at brandeis.edu slash rose. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, violent turmoil in Haiti is driving people out of the country and into cities like Boston. With our shelter system taxed, a growing number of Haitian families are boarding in hospital emergency rooms when they arrive. What their futures look like in a region where housing is scarce. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Russia is now alleging the U.S. was behind yesterday's drone attack that it called an assassination attempt against President Vladimir Putin. Ukraine's leader denied his forces were responsible after Moscow promised retaliation for what it described as a terrorist act. Although Putin was away at the time, now his spokesman is accusing the U.S. of involvement. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby calls that claim ludicrous. The Russians have been trying to paint this war as some sort of fight uh, with the West against Russia, NATO against Russia, the United States against Russia. So it perfectly fits in his frame, uh, the framing that President Putin has tried to label this, uh, this uh, war as, uh, like it was some sort of existential threat to Mother Russia, and of course it's not. Russia's the aggressor here. Kirby says intelligence officials don't have any definitive answers yet for who was behind the drone incident and are investigating a number of possibilities. 
Authorities in Atlanta are charging 24-year-old Dion Patterson with murder and four counts of aggravated assault in yesterday's mass shooting in the city's Midtown area. Patterson waived his first court appearance today. From member station WABE, Julian Virgin has more. The suspect waived his preliminary hearing scheduled Thursday. Police say he opened fire inside of a waiting room at Northside Medical Building, killing one woman and wounding four others Wednesday afternoon. He then allegedly stole a truck at a nearby gas station and drove to neighboring Cobb County. He was later taken into custody at a condominium complex there without incident. Police say camera and technology systems assisted in identifying the suspect's location, as well as a multi-jurisdictional effort by law enforcement agencies. Authorities say the woman killed was 39-year-old Amy St. Pierre. For NPR News, I'm Julian Virgin in Atlanta. Stocks finished lower for a second day in a row on Wall Street. The Dow dropped 286 points, down about eight-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ down half a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts hospitals are starting to announce new mask policies for patients, visitors, and employees. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports the changes come as state and federal officials wind down a host of COVID area policies next week. Beginning next Friday, masks will become optional for most patients, visitors, and staff at hospital systems including Mass General Brigham, Beth Israel Leahy Health, and Boston Medical Center. UMass Memorial Health says patients and visitors won't have to wear masks, but staff will be required to mask up in emergency rooms and cancer clinics. Masking in healthcare facilities has been a key strategy for controlling the spread of COVID since early in the pandemic, but now COVID numbers are near their lowest points since early 2020. Hospital leaders say they'll evaluate and revise mask policies as needed. State officials also may weigh in. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. U.S. Senator Ed Markey wants to set up seed money for local mental health programs in communities that are most affected by the climate crisis. The Massachusetts Democrat reintroduced a bill today to provide $36 million to the Centers for Disease Control to establish such a pilot program. The money would be used to address what he calls a mounting mental health crisis in what are called environmental justice communities. Marlboro Superintendent of Schools is demanding that school bus drivers in the company they work for settle their contract dispute and avert a strike. The driver's union has warned that job action could begin on Monday. Superintendent Mary Murphy says the strike would affect about 5,000 students in her city, and thousands more would be affected in Westboro and Framingham, which are using the same bus company. Drivers are asking for better wages and benefits. They say contract talks with North Reading Transportation have stalled. The company says progress has been made in talks over the past few months. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Complex Stories, working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. ComplexStories.com. It's 46 degrees in the Boston area. That's pretty much where it's going to stay for the overnight hours tonight, give or take a few. Tomorrow, a cloudy morning, sunny and nice afternoon, inching up as high as the mid-50s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Scripps News, committed to objective reporting that illuminates and informs the whole story. Available live with a TV antenna or streaming device. More at scrippsnews.com forward slash TV. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, 
distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. There are new signs of turmoil in the banking system, just days after First Republic Bank became the third lender to fail this year. Shares of several regional banks got hammered. That includes California-based PacWest and Western Alliance, which is headquartered in Arizona. And that's fueling fears there could be more bank failures. NPR's David Gura joins us now. Hi, David. Hey, Sasha. What's the concern about these regionals? Well, there's this worry that just like with those three banks that already failed, PacWest or Western Alliance or another lender could suffer a similar run. Customers would scramble for their money back and a bank would be unable to deal with that demand. Now, like those three other banks, many of the lenders that are under pressure now have a sizable number of deposits that are too large to be insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC. Wall Street is also worried about investments banks have made in government bonds that have lost value as the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates so aggressively. Many lenders are exposed to commercial mortgages, and that makes them increasingly vulnerable as offices across the U.S. remain vacant. And on top of that, there are people on Wall Street, investors known as short sellers, who are betting things are going to get worse. Sasha, they're literally betting regional bank shares are going to go lower. Are these regional banks truly vulnerable? Well, that is what is so weird about this. There's this strange disconnect between the actual health of these banks and what investors think. Chris McGrady is the head of the U.S. bank research practice at the financial services firm KBW, which is part of the financial services firm Stiefel. If you just looked at the balance sheets of these companies and did not look at the stock prices, you would not even be questioning the, um, the solvency of these companies. McGrady told me one culprit is how fast information and misinformation is spreading. That accelerated the first bank run we saw this year at Silicon Valley Bank, and it's also much easier now to move money. Many of these lenders, including PacWest and Western Alliance, reported quarterly earnings recently. We got updates on their financials, and since then they've given us even more information. The majority of them say their deposits have stabilized. The worry was there'd be this exodus of money moving from smaller banks to the big banks, and that ended up not being as bad as expected. So you've got lenders like Western Alliance saying, hey, take a look at our balance sheet. More of our deposits are insured than they were just a few weeks ago. We're financially sound. But none of that seems to matter to investors. PacWest, which has 70 branches, mostly in California, says it's actually seen an increase in core deposits, has more cash and financing than it has uninsured deposits, Yet PacWest's share price has cratered this week, Sasha. It was down 50 percent today. Hmm. So what could or should happen from here? Well, no one really knows for sure. But if these stocks continue to sink, that's going to create a real risk. This could be a self-fulfilling prophecy. If shares continue to sink, that could motivate customers to withdraw their money, sparking the kind of bank run short sellers have been betting on. And eventually, there may be no recourse except a failure or a government rescue. Now, Federal regulators are in a very tricky position here. They used emergency powers to guarantee deposits at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. They stepped in to negotiate a quick sale of First Republic Bank to J.P. Morgan Chase. What's unclear is what will happen the next time a bank gets into serious trouble. What we've seen the government do so far has been very costly. It's cost tens of billions of dollars. But, Sasha, if this turmoil continues, the government will be under pressure to intervene again. NPR's David Gura, thank you. Thank you. The commercial company SpaceX is trying to build a rocket that can one day take people to the moon and Mars. Making it work is costing billions of dollars. NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports on whether the company might be trying to fly too high. 
The rocket is called Starship, and it is a stainless steel beast of a machine. When it lifted off last month, SpaceX employees cheered as they watched the video feed. They kept cheering as the massive rocket pulverized the concrete under its launch pad, as one of its engines appeared to explode on the way up, and even when it began to somersault out of control and disintegrate over the Gulf of Mexico. None of that was supposed to happen, but SpaceX's employees didn't seem to mind, nor did the company's founder, Elon Musk. The outcome was roughly what I expected. That was Musk speaking on Twitter recently about the flight test. Starship is an innovative design, the biggest rocket ever built. It wasn't supposed to work on the first try. Musk says SpaceX will spend $2 billion on Starship this year alone. His longtime dream is that it will travel to Mars. We're going to solve the issues that are remaining, and uh, we'll get it to orbit, and we'll, we'll make it reusable. And that means that, that we have a, a real path here to get humanity to Mars. But making humans an interplanetary species in this economy? That's a lot for SpaceX to take on. And it's not the company's only big project. SpaceX is also building a costly satellite internet service called Starlink. SpaceX is a private company, so its finances aren't known. But most analysts agree between launching thousands of satellites to blanket the Earth with internet service and preparing for a visit to Mars, it's losing money. It's hard to imagine how they could be generating cash with those level investments. Chris Quilty is president of Quilty Space, a company that tracks the space industry. SpaceX does make money launching commercial and government satellites on its existing rockets, but Quilty and other analysts believe Starship and Starlink will keep it in the red for a while. Until Starship is flying and the development costs are down and it's generating revenue instead of consuming cash, and until you know, they start getting new Starlink satellites on orbit, you know, I think it's uh, it'll be a challenge for them. That will be a problem for most space companies, but SpaceX is different. It's valued at close to $140 billion, making it one of the biggest private companies in the country. And investors have been lining up to plow money into its big projects. SpaceX has consistently raised money. And even in this, you know, more constrained environment seems to uh, be able to uh, raise substantial amounts. Carissa Christensen is CEO of Bryce Tech, an analytics and engineering firm. In addition to private investment, SpaceX has won around $4 billion in contracts from NASA to develop Starship into a lander that can put astronauts on the moon. That government money should help keep the project going. I think that being one of the core players in a well-funded, well-supported return to the moon by the government is very, very valuable from Starship's perspective. In his briefing on the rocket, Musk said he did not anticipate needing to raise more money for SpaceX in the near term. But Chris Quilty says at some point he believes SpaceX will have to raise more capital. I suspect over the next couple of years, they will continue to need to tap the markets for more cash. This first test shows that SpaceX had the funding and vision to get Starship off the ground. Everyone here absolutely pumped to clear the pad and make it this far into the test flight. But whether investors are willing to take SpaceX to the moon and beyond remains to be seen. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News.
Elsewhere in today's show, hundreds of billions of dollars in taxes go unpaid every year. So the IRS has a plan to bolster tax enforcement on the wealthy, and it also has a lot of new funding for that plan. We'll speak with the IRS commissioner about all that. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The 1970 novel, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, has landed on lots of bestseller lists over the years and lots of banned book lists, too. Well, now the tale of the 11-year-old sixth grader Margaret Simon navigating the simple joys and complicated changes of life has become a movie. After she watched the film adaptation, WBUR Sharon Brody unearthed her own diary from a long time ago when she was 11. She began to reflect on her introduction to Margaret. One afternoon back in the 1970s, my mom handed me the novel. I was about finished with sixth grade. I was what my frenemies called undeveloped, and somehow I knew the book demanded my immediate attention. I read, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, three times in a row, and then loaned it to my friends who loaned the book to their friends, and on and on, an endless chain of girls trying to help each other decipher, well, everything. The book taps into a blend of innocence and urgency, the beautiful and perilous passage that is sixth grade. And it marked the first time I had ever experienced a work of art that seemed to have sprung to life after spying on me. With every page I turned, I felt more convinced. I might be normal, and I am not alone. Early in my sixth grade diary, I scribbled, In math, we had a test. It was easy. You know, I sort of think I need a bra. Early in the novel, Margaret says, I just told my mother I want a bra. Please help me grow, God, you know where. Judy Bloom gifted the world with a romp that made me laugh as, like Margaret, I muddled my way through elevendom, toggling between childhood and the mysteries that lay beyond. From my diary, I got a bra. I didn't ask her anything. From my diary, a few sentences later, as bra reality sunk in. I really can't figure out what I felt like. Sort of depressed and sort of happy and sort of foolish and, well, I just felt weird. It is tight and sort of itchy. Preach, little me, preach. The fictional Margaret survives the ordeal of the puberty movie. So did I. In Orange Felt Tip, I told my diary, a lot happened today. The sixth grade girl saw a movie about growing up. Then we talked about it. I had no questions. What strikes me now, though, is how much the culture has changed. I lucked out with great parents, but back in the day, most kids did not get accurate, non-judgmental information at home or at school about the proverbial facts of life. That meant a lot of girls didn't merely get a kick out of, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret. They needed the book. It was an education. It was validation. The world was a straight-talk desert, and this novel served as the oasis. For more recent generations, Judy Bloom's book and the excellent new film feel more optional. Which is good. It's progress. 
as a society, we have inched forward from automatically saddling girls with shame because they have bodies. Still, a small part of me wishes today's fans could experience the thrill of being in the first wave of tweens to join Margaret for that bold leap into polite people don't talk about these subjects, Phil. Or maybe I should just take the win. After all, 11-year-old me knew how to pivot toward victory. One spring day of my sixth grade year, I grabbed a green ballpoint pen and scrawled these words. If something happens to me and they read my diary, I'm afraid they won't have much to say about it. I do not lead a very interesting life. I learned a new way to jump rope. Sharon Brody is the host of WBUR's Weekend Edition. You can read her essay and many more at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DEC, presentation coaches, designers, and writers who use the power of storytelling to help speakers connect with audiences. More at presentationsbydeck.com. And the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more, now open, worcesterart.org. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the Justice Department gets a key victory with the conviction of four members of the far-right Proud Boys for their roles in the January 6th riot. This is WBUR 46 degrees now in Boston at 449. I'm Jeff Cohen, WBUR's managing producer for local news. My mother's name was Judy. She died seven years ago. One of the things I miss most about her is her voice. Luckily, she called me every day and she left me lots of messages to tell me she was proud. So excited, call us when you have time. Or mad. You have time to play on Facebook, but you won't answer your mother's phone call. And the obvious. I love you, kiss the girls, don't make them cry, bye. Mom had no idea how much these voicemails would mean. Little gifts that she left me for later, like a letter lost in the mail that suddenly delivered. They're bits of audio and love that remind me of the power of both. If you love the power of radio and you're looking to celebrate your mom or anyone else this Mother's Day, consider sending Winston Flowers from WBUR. You'll be supporting storytelling and the power of the human voice. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org and thanks. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Time now for some science news with our friends at NPR science podcast Shortwave. Emily Kwong and Regina Barber host the podcast, and they're here now for our bi-weekly science roundup. Hi to both of you. Hello. Hi. Sasha, so good to be with you. <laughs> good to have you. So Emily and Regina, the two of you have been combing through headlines, journals, social media. You've picked out three science stories for us to hear more about this week. Is that right? That's right. We've got kind of a fitness recreation health theme going on today. So I hope you're ready to become your best self. Yeah, we've got stories about counting steps, ice baths, and something known as virtual reality sickness. Hmm. Let's start with that last one first. Virtual reality sickness. Is that similar to motion sickness? Yeah. VR sickness, for short, is a lot like motion sickness, which I get in cars and boats when I read. Same. (laughs) What's happening in our bodies, though, is that we're noticing inconsistencies between what we're seeing and what our bodies are feeling. 
our bodies are actually accelerometers and there's structures inside our ears and our joints that tell us when we're speeding up and slowing down. But if your visuals don't line up with what you're actually feeling, you can start to feel sick. Oh, yes, this definitely happens to me. It's why I can't read in cars, which is really frustrating when you're looking for ways to pass a lot of time. But you just end up feeling queasy. I know. I Long car rides. It's just a struggle. It's horrible. <laughs> so have scientists gotten interested in this because gaming's gotten so prevalent and more people end up in these virtual reality situations where they don't feel great? Yeah, absolutely. There is just VR games and training. And there's a large population that just can't experience this because they just get too sick. So scientists are trying to figure out why some people are more susceptible than others. This sounds like there could be some fun experiments involved. How do scientists study this? Yeah, so it actually is. So I talked to one researcher, Michael Barnett Cowan at University of Waterloo about this. And he says they asked people to take a visual test before playing a VR game for 30 minutes. And this test involved looking at a luminous vertical line when your head is tilted. And this creates an optical illusion. And they asked if that vertical line looked tilted or straight up and down. And then they play their game, they come back. And they report whether they feel sick and they retake this visual test to see if their perception of that visual line has changed. And if they didn't really change at all in those two settings, those were the people who got more sick. The people who changed were less sick and it didn't matter the direction. So Regina, what is the scientific takeaway there? So basically people who had no change in how they perceived things before and after, their bodies never got the time to kind of reconcile the difference between their visuals and their body's accelerometers. Researchers are still trying to figure out why some people can adapt to this kind of VR experience quicker than others. There's also still so many unknowns, like how do you figure out how to mitigate these effects? So we really need more studies to get to that one goal to make VR accessible for many more people. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about health period is that everyone's body is so different. Everyone experiences the world in a different way. The VR story is a perfect example. And um, the, the example I have has to do with updating a long-held popular health claim, which is that we should be taking 10,000 steps a day. It is a number built into all kinds of apps and wearable fitness trackers as this daily aspiration. But Sasha, that 10,000 step claim is not based in science. It's actually based in marketing. Oh, why am I not surprised? <laughs> <laughs> so what's the marketing history of this? It's, it's pretty fascinating. In 1965, a Japanese company was selling pedometers, and the Japanese character for 10,000 just so happens to look a bit like a person walking. So the company sold their pedometer as the 10,000-step meter, and that number kind of stuck without much research to support it. Wow. The person to piece together this history for public health purposes is Dr. I. Min Lee, Harvard Medical School professor and epidemiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital. For many folks who are older, I think 10,000 steps can be very daunting. Huh. I think 10,000 steps is, what, five miles? So I can see how, for especially if you're older, that would feel like a big distance. Yeah, it's a lot. So to figure this out, and I read about this in a recent article from Scientific American, Dr. Lee and fellow researchers a few years ago tracked more than 16,000 women 45 years and older who all wore a pedometer over four years, okay? And they found that at 4,400 steps a day, steady participants did have significantly lower mortality rates. But after only 7,500 steps, it kind of leveled out. Meaning suddenly they weren't seeing as much uh, health benefit from it? Yes, exactly. Huh, why? 
So as we get older, our movements become less efficient, and each step requires more energy. Oh, aging. Every time I hear new, more news about <laughs> aging, it seems bad. <laughs> no, no, no. More. But, but here's an upside. Think of it this way, right? It means that you need fewer steps to reap the same health benefits. Oh. So Dr. Lee's ultimate recommendation, if you're older, if you're over, say, 65, is getting between 6,000 and 8,000 steps a day is more than enough to result in real health outcomes. And if you're sedentary or your area isn't safe to walk in, even a modest increase, just some walking every day, will significantly improve your cardiovascular health and your life expectancy. Getting some steps is always better than getting fewer steps. And this nuance matters to me. It just means that as our bodies change, our expectations for ourselves should change too. And ranges are better than hard and fast numbers. All right, so we've covered virtual reality sickness. We've covered counting steps. You said you also wanted to talk about ice baths. Yeah, so we're talking about cold water immersion. That's the phenomenon where people are jumping into cold lakes, taking freezing showers, or sitting in tubs of ice cubes. I have an older, I had, he's no longer alive, an older Finnish friend who loved to do that. He would dunk himself into cold water. I always thought it must feel excruciatingly uncomfortable, but he really thought it was good for him. Yeah, it scares me a little bit, but people have been promoting this on social media, saying that it gives them like more energy and it improves their mood. It definitely causes a rush um, and gets your heart rate up. My fiance and I are hosting a polar plunge the morning of our wedding next month. We're getting 100 people to run straight into the main ocean for fun. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I'm there, I'm there for the social benefits, you know. And are there actually any health benefits to this? Yeah, even though the practice is old and traditional, there's a lot of people that do it around the world, like your Finnish friend, the research on cold immersion is new. There's just not a ton of studies to back up these anecdotal claims of health benefits. Yeah, most of the research that's been done on cold water immersion is on elite athletes. And we do know that cold water affects blood flow. When you get in the bath, uh, your blood vessels constrict, and then when you get out, they enlarge, and that kind of supercharges the removal of lactic acid and other waste products because that blood is full of oxygen and nutrients, and it lowers inflammation. But... The thing is, is we don't know if cold water immersion is better at healing muscles than, say, active recovery, like walking or cycling between workouts. It seems like there's lots of things that can help our muscles heal. And there's just not a clear consensus because in a lot of these studies, you just can't clearly say that they have health benefits because the people might have been already healthy. But my consensus is that doesn't mean it isn't fun. It's actually, I would argue, more fun than a bouquet toss at your wedding. So maybe you should try it. I would not argue that. <laughs> different definitions of fun for different people. Indeed. That's Emily Kwong and Regina Barber. They host NPR's science podcast, Shortwave. That's where you can learn about new discoveries, everyday mysteries, and the science behind the headlines. Emily and Regina, thanks, and see you next time. It's been fun. Thanks, Sasha. Thank you, Sasha. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to shorten the gap between cancer research and cancer care. Learn more about Dana-Farber's Momentum of Discovery 
at DanaFarber.org slash stories. This is NPR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100, now on view, ICABoston.org. And the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College, offering an industry-aligned degree that can help drive better organizational and business decisions. bc.edu msae. I'm education reporter Carrie Young. And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A federal jury has convicted four members of the far-right group The Proud Boys of Seditious Conspiracy for the role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. They found that these Proud Boys agreed before the attack to oppose the transfer of presidential power. Today is Thursday, May 4th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, as the battle over banning books escalates, libraries are facing an existential threat. If kids get access to library books deemed inappropriate for them, the libraries could lose their public funding. And in Newburyport, four workers escape a pharmaceutical plant explosion. Another worker is missing. The blast happened about 1 a.m. Neighbors say it lit up the sky. You could just see, I mean, it looks like daylight. It's so bright. And we live pretty much out in the woods. Um, And then you hear this massive boom about two seconds later. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The standoff over the nation's debt ceiling was the focus of a Senate hearing today. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports lawmakers on the Budget Committee heard testimony from a number of witnesses on a Republican-backed bill would raise the borrowing limit in exchange for deep cuts in government spending. Mark Sandy, chief economist at Moody's Analytics, encouraged lawmakers to put aside the political drama, warning that now is not the time for debate over the nation's debt ceiling. We need both additional tax revenue and we need spending restraint. Both of those things need to happen. We need to end this drama as quickly as possible. If we don't, we're going to go into recession and our fiscal challenges will be made even worse. If the U.S. is unable to fulfill its current financial obligations, parts of the government could shut down, pushing the economy into a near certain recession. The Treasury Department says the nation could default as early as June 1st if Congress doesn't act. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The number of dead in the southern Ukrainian region of Kherson rose to 26 today after a barrage of missiles hit four locations. NPR's Joanna Kakissis is there and reports Russia stepped up attacks on Ukraine ahead of a planned counteroffensive. Air defenses have shot down drones that Russia launched at the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv. But on Wednesday, Russian missiles hit several locations, including a supermarket in the city of Kherson. Exhausted supermarket workers have spent the day washing out the aisles, still red with the blood of dead shoppers. Yevgen Kostenko lives next door to the supermarket. This is a sign that Russia is desperate, he says. They can't win on the battlefield, so they're shelling whatever and whoever. Ukrainian forces liberated the city of Kherson in November, but Russian forces remain nearby and continue to attack it. 
Joanna Kikisis, NPR News, Kherson. The European Central Bank raised interest rates today in an effort to curb inflation. NPR Scott Horsley reports the move follows similar action by the Federal Reserve. The European Central Bank says while inflation has eased in the eurozone, prices are still climbing too fast for comfort. The ECB raised its benchmark interest rate by a quarter percentage point. The Federal Reserve's quarter point hike a day earlier could be its last for a while. The Fed has now increased borrowing costs 10 times in the last 14 months. Regional bank stocks remain under pressure after three bank failures since March. PacWest Bank Corp says it's been approached by several potential suitors and offered reassurance that it's not seeing an unusual run on deposits. New claims for unemployment benefits ticked up last week. Some 242,000 people applied for jobless aid, 13,000 more than the week before. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Stocks fell on Wall Street today. The Dow is down 286 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The federal government has awarded Boston more than $16 million to help it find homes for the unsheltered. WBUR's Linton Jolliker has more. The city had to apply and compete for the grant from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. It will help more than 350 individuals and families get housed or remain in housing. Mayor Michelle Wu says the money will fund permanent housing units, housing vouchers, and support programs. With services like professional resources and job training, mental and physical health care, to ensure that people don't just have safe places to sleep, but everything they need to thrive once they've moved in. The funds will be divided among several nonprofits and the Boston Housing Authority. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. A former Boston Public Schools dean who tried to kill a student has been sentenced for federal racketeering conspiracy. Sean Harrison was an academic dean at English High School. He's been in state prison since he was convicted of attempted murder in 2018. He tried to kill a student that he had recruited into the Latin Kings gang. Last year, he pleaded guilty to a new federal charge that accused him of working with gang members from behind bars to try to identify a police informant. Today, he was sentenced to an additional 18 years in prison on that charge. Search teams in Newburyport are now inside a badly damaged pharmaceutical plant after an overnight explosion there. One worker at Sequence PCI Synthesis remains missing following the blast. Megan Williams lives nearby. She says her home security camera recorded the explosion at 1 a.m. You could just see, I mean, it looks like daylight. It's so bright. And we live pretty much out in the woods. Um, and then you hear this massive boom about two seconds later. The city's fire chief says the air quality around the facility was not affected. Newburyport's mayor says the business is cooperating with the city. In 2019, federal regulators found serious violations in how the company handled highly hazardous chemicals. And U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren is demanding more information about the collapse of First Republic Bank. The Massachusetts Democrat has sent a letter to the bank's former CEO. In it, Warren seeks answers about the management of First Republic and efforts by its leaders to loosen banking regulations. The financial institution was the sixth largest bank in Massachusetts last year. 47 degrees now in the Boston area. Raw and rainy today and overnight tonight. Looks like we should have a lot of clouds around. Temperatures just about where they are now in the mid-40s. And then tomorrow, clouds in the morning, sunshine in the afternoon. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Juana Summers. It's the most serious charge defendants in the January 6 trials have faced. Seditious conspiracy. And today, four more people have been convicted for their involvement in the 2021 attack on the Capitol and efforts to stop the certification of the presidential election. They're all members of the Proud Boys. That's the far-right white extremist group that formed in 2016. They've been accused in various incidents of political violence since then, including the racist and deadly Unite the Right rally in 2017. Another moment of notoriety for the group came on a national stage. Stand back and stand by, but I'll tell you what. That's former President Donald Trump failing to fully denounce the Proud Boys during a 2020 presidential debate. Justice Department prosecutors would go on to say that the Proud Boys saw themselves as foot soldiers for Trump as they stormed the Capitol, led by then-Proud Boys chairman Enrique Tarrio. Yeah, we got banned off more things, but we're already banned on anything you can think of. I can't tell you it got worse, because you run out of things to ban us from. That's Tario in 2021, telling NPR about the fallout his group faced after the Capitol attack. And the consequences for him and three other members now are far more serious. NPR's Carrie Johnson has been covering the trial and joins us now from the courthouse. So Carrie, give us the headlines. What did the jury decide? On the biggest charge, sedition or using force to oppose the U.S. government, the jury found former Proud Boys chairman Enrique Tarrio guilty. They also convicted Joseph Biggs, who has ties to the conspiracy site Infowars, Zach Reel, the head of the Philadelphia chapter of the Proud Boys, and Ethan Nordine, who played a big role on the ground at the Capitol. The jury convicted them of other pretty serious felonies, too, including conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding and obstructing law enforcement. And Dominic Pizzola, who grabbed a police shield and used it to bash in a window at the Capitol, was acquitted of sedition by this jury, but he was found guilty of robbery, obstruction, and conspiracy. The Justice Department has been continuing to investigate the events around the siege at the Capitol on January 6, 2021, but how important is this case to their work? This is a significant victory for prosecutors. They've now won convictions against the former leaders of both the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, two of the more important groups with boots on the ground at the Capitol. The Attorney General Merrick Garland says the Justice Department is going to do everything in its power to defend the American people and defend democracy. These are not easy cases. It's hard to prove someone tried to use force to overthrow the government, and it should be. And remember, Tario wasn't even in D.C. on January 6th. He'd been banished from the city by a judge for burning a Black Lives Matter flag in December. But prosecutors were still able to convince this jury that Tario was monitoring and directing the action. For instance, they showed jurors a message from Tario that day that says, quote, make no mistake, we did this. And Gary, what has been the response from the defense lawyers to the verdict today? Uh, disappointment, really. The lawyers for Tario say they respect the jury's decision, uh, but they disagree with it. They're going to focus on an appeal. And a lawyer for defendant Joe Biggs said in court the verdict is a, quote, miscarriage of justice, and he's going to place his hope in the appeals court, too. The judge did not yet set a date for sentencing for these men. Carrie, the former president, Donald Trump, loomed large over this case. What role did he play and what might these verdicts mean for him? 
You know, the jury saw footage, that footage of Trump telling the Proud Boys to stand by during a presidential debate. They saw his tweet in December 2020, rallying people to come to the Capitol, telling them it will be wild. Tario's lawyers say their client was really just a scapegoat, that it was Trump's anger that rallied the crowd to storm the Capitol. And as for Trump himself, that's all part of a very active investigation by the special counsel, Jack Smith, who's been using grand juries in this very courthouse. Donald Trump has not been charged with any wrongdoing, but we know some top lawyers from his White House and aides for former Vice President Mike Tens have testified. We're going to be watching for more action this summer. NPR's Carrie Johnson, thank you. My pleasure. There have been no arrests following the death of Jordan Neely on Monday in New York City. Neely was a homeless man who was black. He was killed on a subway train by a commuter, a white man, who put Neely in a chokehold. The city's medical examiner called the death a homicide. NPR's Brian Mann is following. Hi, Brian. Hi, Sasha. Do we know what happened that led to this? There's a lot here that we don't know yet. Part of this incident was captured on video by another commuter on Monday. You can see a white man who has not been identified by the police holding Neely tightly around the neck. Two other individuals appear to help restrain Neely while other commuters look on. The medical examiner says compression of the neck was the cause of death, but this video doesn't show what happened that led up to the incident. The man who recorded the video told media that Neely was shouting, that he was hungry and ready to die. But again, the video doesn't capture any of that. Police did detain uh, a man involved in this incident and questioned him before letting him go. There was a protest last night in a subway station and another one planned for today. What's the message of the protesters? Well, you know, Sasha, statistically, New York is one of the safest cities in the U.S., but Jordan Neely's death comes in the midst of this really tense and complicated debate over crime and race, homelessness and mental illness. And what's happening here is some people are angry that a black man was killed in public in plain sight and no one's been arrested. Here's the sound of a protest yesterday in the Broadway Lafayette subway station recorded by WNYC Radio. They're chanting justice for Jordan Neely there. New York City Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted that Neely's death was a murder. She blasted New York City police for not charging anyone. Uh, She wrote that Jordan was houseless and crying for food. New York City Council President Adrian Adams also issued a statement saying Neely's killing and the law enforcement response uh, reflect, and I'm quoting here, racism that continues to permeate throughout our society. Brian, New York City's mayor is a Democrat. He's also a former police officer, and he's framed this differently. What is he saying? Yeah, that's right. Mayor Eric Adams issued a statement saying his administration is working to make the subway system safer. He's launched a major push amid some controversy to get people with mental illness off the streets, out of train stations. And since Monday, he's actually criticized other politicians for, as he describes it, rushing to judgment on what triggered this deadly encounter between another commuter and Neely. Here's Adams speaking on CNN. I was a former transit police officer, and I responded to many jobs where you had a passenger assisted someone. And so we cannot just blankly say what a passenger should or should not do in a situation like that. We should allow the investigation to take its course. And the question legally going forward is whether Neely did anything to justify this use of force by the other commuter. There are now two investigations underway, one by the NIPD, another by the Manhattan District Attorney. The DA's office issued a statement saying they plan to interview every witness and, and look at this video frame by frame. Brian, as we've said, we know that Jordan Neely was, was homeless. What more do we know about him? 
Yeah, it's, it's it's sad. Neely was 30 years old. He had a history of repeated arrests and apparently had been unhoused for some time. He used to be a recognized figure on the city's subway system. He would dress like Michael Jackson, and, and there are videos heartbreaking now to watch of him dancing and performing to earn money. Press accounts describe a, a struggle with mental illness, uh, which NPR could not confirm. Now he's dead, and people are asking how come vulnerable people, people like Jordan Neely, are not getting help before incidents like this happen. That's NPR's Brian Mann. Brian, thank you for telling us about this. Thank you. When King Charles III is crowned as king this Saturday, he's not only becoming the king of the United Kingdom, he's also becoming head of state of 14 other countries, or realms as they're known in the Commonwealth of Nations. But their future is uncertain. Barbados cast off the monarchy in 2021, with Rihanna in attendance, along with then Prince Charles. Declare Barbados a parliamentary republic. Other countries have already said they'll follow suit. Here's Jamaica's Prime Minister, Andrew Holness, speaking earlier this year. Please move ahead with speed and alacrity on this matter. Jamaica must become a republic. I'm definitely for uh, leaving the monarchy and for Jamaican becoming a republic. Opal Palmer Adisa is a poet and activist in Kingston. She says Britain's colonial legacy in the Caribbean is troubling and deeply entangled with slavery. If the British expect to have a congenial, equal relationship with people of African descent, then they must apologize and admit the dehumanizing impact of 500 years of colonization. Adisa says Jamaica's transition to a republic is a long time coming. Another advocate, Rosa Lee Hamilton, says George Floyd's murder accelerated the push. When the world watched a white policeman standing on the neck of a black man in the U.S., Jamaicans woke up to the reality that we have a governor general that's wearing an insignia with a white angel standing on the head of a black man. Their calls are echoed in neighboring St. Lucia, where we find journalist Earl Bousquet. The royal family is lagging behind in its understanding and appreciation of the depth of its unpopularity within the Commonwealth and among Commonwealth citizens. Bousquet expects St. Lucia to become a republic within a few years. And across the world in the Pacific, New Zealand Prime Minister Chris Hipkins said this week he thinks his country will someday become fully independent, just not right now. I don't think that changing, swapping out the governor general for some other form of head of state um, is necessarily an urgent priority right now, though. Regardless of whether countries stay or leave, Rosalie Hamilton in Jamaica says the Commonwealth needs to change. It's an anachronistic institution that needs to be modernized. It needs to be relevant to the modern world. She says that includes a greater reckoning with the Commonwealth's colonial past.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. On Wall Street, stocks closed lower for a fourth day. The Dow lost almost nine-tenths of a percent. S&P fell about three-quarters of a percent, and the Nasdaq was down just about a half percent. The number of people filing for unemployment benefits in the state is rising. Numbers out today show just over 28,000 people in Massachusetts filed jobless claims last week. That compares to just under 25,000 people the week before and about 16,000 people the week before that. Overall, the U.S. Labor Department believes Americans have strong job security despite rising interest rates and economic uncertainty. Marketplace has details on this day in business coming up at 6.30. It's now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, you can do the same thing now with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBR app. Download it at the App Store. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Somerville Open Studios. This weekend, noon to 6. Over 350 artists in 90 locations. Map, artist, and trolley info at somervillestudios.org. And Xfinity Internet. Announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Our raw and rainy day is coming to an end. Clouds should hang in there overnight tonight. Temperatures about where they are now in the mid-40s. And for tomorrow, some clouds in the morning. Finally, the sunshine lets its way in in the afternoon. Should be pretty nice with temperatures in the mid-50s for a high. The weekend is looking bright, sunny skies and warmer temperatures. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new season of Grace, based on the detective novels by Peter James. Grace and more original mysteries, including The Bay and Karen Peary, are streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Juana Summers. The battle over books is escalating as a growing number of public libraries now face a loss of government funding if they have books deemed inappropriate. Some of the latest targets are in Missouri. As NPR's Tovia Smith reports, libraries are worried about how they'll manage. It's the newest weapon being deployed in the fight over books, and in Missouri, it's coming at libraries from multiple directions. Lawmakers have been considering several bills that could axe library funding. Those efforts now look unlikely, but meantime, Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft stepped in, enacting what's called an administrative rule that doesn't need legislative approval. I said, I have to figure out how to do this because by rule, I can get it done much more quickly than if I wait on the legislature. The new rules go into effect May 30th, and public libraries will have a short grace period to comply or lose state funding, which ranges from 1 to 20 percent of their budget. Under the rules, libraries can't give minors books their parents don't want them to read. There can't be books in the kids' section that are, quote, age inappropriate. And libraries have to publicize how they select books and how parents can challenge those choices. Also, all events, like story hours, must have, quote, age-appropriate designations. 
It's all happening as books are being banned from libraries at rates unseen in recent history. Most have to do with LGBTQ themes or race and racism. But Ashcroft says tying funding to book selection is not banning books. I think this is reasonable strings on dollars. We see that all the time with government funding. It happens with highways. It happens with schools. That is the way of the world. But Ashcroft concedes it's unclear how exactly the Missouri rules would be enforced. I I, I really don't know how it would work. I could potentially see maybe a parent sues my office and says, hey, you're not allowed to fund them. They're not doing what they said they're doing. But that would then be decided in a court of law. I think we're just all in shock. I mean, it's not clear cut at all. How in the world is this going to work? And there's just so much that can go wrong. Otter Bowman, president of the Missouri Library Association, has been scrambling with attorneys to figure out how to comply with the new rules and how to interpret terms like age appropriate. That's all on top of her day job, keeping up with her regular library work. So you guys know how I got here, right? I came on the bookmobile. Bowman brings library books from the Daniel Boone Regional Library to preschoolers in central Missouri and runs story times. Hello. I am Ducky Duckling. When I'm feeling happy, I say quack, quack. The happy face Bowman puts on for the kids belies her anxiety about the new rules. It's impossible, she says, for librarians to police which kids take which books or to stop teens, for example, from wandering into the adult section of the library, even though any of that could prove catastrophic. It's terrifying. It's... I could go home thinking, oh my goodness, I just cost my library $160,000 because that's the amount of state aid that we would lose if we violated the rule. Any proposal to defund a library is the nuclear option. Deborah Caldwell-Stone of the American Library Association says what started as skirmishes over individual titles and escalated into threats of jail or fines is now posing an existential threat to libraries. It's an attack on education. It's an attack on the public good. And the idea is very much alive and gaining steam. Indeed, in Texas, a bill would defund public libraries that allow drag show story times for children. And while Llano County in Texas just dodged a bullet that would have defunded libraries there, others were not so lucky. In Jamestown Township, Michigan, the Patmos Library is facing closure after voters shot down local funding. And in Arkansas, the Craighead County Jonesboro Library System saw its funding cut in half following complaints about books and an LGBTQ exhibit. Arkansas State Senator Dan Sullivan represents the area and supported the local cuts. The citizens thought some material was too sexually explicit to be in the children's section or even in the young adult section, and the library board disagreed and kept the material where it was. And that's why we vote. The citizens have the final say. That's the American way. Sullivan dismisses accusations that anyone is trying to bully libraries into compliance. All elections send a message. You know, it's the will of the people. And if they're upset with how the government is spending their money, uh, that's the recourse of the electorate. But meantime, the Craighead County libraries are fighting to survive. Library Director Vanessa Adams says she's considering closing branches and slashing book buys, staff, programming for kids and the elderly, and library hours, which would limit Internet access for many people who don't have it at home. 
it's very frightening. It's very upsetting. You have to you have to take drastic measures. And it's nothing I learned in library school. Adams also worries the funding threats are a slippery slope. Carol Daw is already seeing it. She's the director of a library cooperative in Michigan that's working with the recently defunded Patmos Library. One of the board members said, well, what about this book? It's about underage drinking and underage drinking is illegal. So why would we have this book in the library? And my question would be, where does that end? What are you doing next? Where does this end? Republican Congressman Clay Higgins from Louisiana has a thought on that. Higgins, who didn't respond to requests for comment, recently tweeted that libraries have become grooming centers, and he wants to change the, quote, whole public library paradigm and help get funding for what he called beautiful church-owned public access libraries. I will tell you I'm not supposed to swear on NPR, but that's some of the scary shit I've ever heard. Lexi Janulius is Secretary of State in Illinois. Instead of threatening to cut funding for libraries that refuse to remove certain books, Janulius decided to use that same tactic in reverse, punishing libraries that do ban books. Now, legislation is headed to the governor's desk that would make state library grants available only to those that explicitly oppose book bans. This is our way of pushing back the other way. You know, in Chicago, they say, if they bring a knife, you bring a gun. As one lawmaker put it, taxpayer money should not go to libraries that cave to the mob and ban books. But others are less sanguine. Caldwell Stone from the American Library Association says she appreciates the sentiment, but believes it's unwise for anyone to use funding as a club to control which books get on library shelves. The better strategy, she says, is knowing where elected officials stand on the freedom to read and holding them accountable at the ballot box. Vanessa Adams, the director of the Arkansas Library, whose funding was sliced in half, learned that the hard way. Only 20 percent of voters showed up to cast ballots, and the cut passed by just 48 votes. If that doesn't tell you how important it is to get out there and vote, I don't know what does, because 48 votes cost us $2 million. Now, Adams is spending some of the money the library has left on a consultant to help with public messaging. As she puts it, we need to remind people about the value of their public library. Tovia Smith, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, Danny Werfel's in place as the new IRS commissioner with a new budget courtesy of the Inflation Reduction Act. We'll hear how he's going to spend it. And singer Ed Sheeran has won a copyright trial brought by the co-writer of Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. In the forecast tonight, look for more clouds around. Temperatures staying where they are now in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, cloudy to start, then sunshine later on. WBUR supporters include BG Catering Concepts, who believes in the power of great food to bring people together. Learn more at bgcateringconcepts.com. I'm WBUR reporter Simone Rios. My mom gave me my love for language, a sense of curiosity, and ideals like patience and open-mindedness. 
This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support and strengthen journalism that feeds your curiosity. Choose your perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Ukrainian human rights officials say Russian forces have detained more than 20,000 Ukrainian civilians and taken many of them to Russia against their will. NPR's Yulian Haida tells us Ukraine is urging its citizens who live in Russian-occupied territory to leave as soon as possible. Earlier this week, Russia implemented a policy that would strip Ukrainians living in occupied territory of their Ukrainian citizenship. Now Ukraine's human rights ombudsman Dmitry Lubinets says Ukrainians with Russian citizenship should not be permitted to move back and forth. Lubinets called Russian-occupied Ukraine a new ghetto, an open-air concentration camp. He says that Ukraine won't be able to protect Ukrainians from human rights abuses, even if they had a compelling reason to accept Russian citizenship. Lubinets says that despite criticism at home, he keeps in daily contact with his Russian counterpart Tatyana Moskalkova to ensure that those who want to leave can. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Lviv, Ukraine. The European Central Bank has slowed the pace of its interest rate increases today, much like the U.S. Federal Reserve did yesterday after a string of 10 rate hikes aimed at snuffing out high inflation. The move has slowed economic growth as well as business and consumer spending, both in the U.S. and Europe. Here's NPR's Rob Schmitz. The European Central Bank warned that the inflation outlook for Europe has remained too high for too long. That was a justification for hiking the eurozone's key interest rate a quarter of a percentage point to 3.75 percent. The move follows a similar announcement by the U.S. Federal Reserve on Wednesday, which also raised borrowing costs by a quarter of a point, but hinted that it could soon pause raising interest rates. NPR's Rob Schmitz. Meanwhile, stocks closed lower on Wall Street today for a second day in a row over worries about the U.S. banking system following the collapse of three regional banks. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Search crews are now inside a pharmaceutical plant in Newburyport where there was an explosion early this morning. One worker remains missing. Four others escaped unhurt. The company that owns the plant is Sequence PCI Synthesis. As WBUR's Paolo Mauro reports, it has a history of environmental and worker safety violations. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration has cited sequence for multiple serious safety violations since 2015. Sequence also settled an agreement with the Environmental Protection Agency after inspection on hazardous waste air emissions about three years ago. All Vega is with the Massachusetts Coalition for Occupational Safety and Health. Why are we allowing companies to continue to operate knowing that there's a laundry list of these kinds of concerns already brought to their attention? OSHA says it has sent inspectors to the site and open an investigation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. Boston plans to use $16 million in federal money to provide housing to people who live unsheltered in the city. Officials announced the grant money today. It comes after the city began to remove tent encampments uh, that belong to unsheltered residents on Monday. The removals are taking place near the intersection of Mass Ave and Melnia Cass Boulevard. 
in the South End. And a Cambridge organization that fights food insecurity plans to expand its operations. Food for Free has used grant money to purchase a new box truck to add to its fleet that transports rescued and donated food to people in need. Tim Caravetta is the associate director of operations for the organization. He says he's excited to expand Food for Free's operations. Just having our name on something so bright and shiny and, uh, you know, being able to move hundreds of thousands of pounds more food every month and in- increasing our impact in the community and uh, with our partners. That's Tim Cavaretta. The new truck will allow the group to transport an additional 27,000 pounds of food per day. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Should be a damp evening tonight. Some light rain, plenty more clouds, lows staying in the mid-40s. And tomorrow, clouds to start up the day. Sunshine for the second half. Highs near 55 degrees. 48 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. In a little bit, we'll hear about how musician Ed Sheeran has won a major copyright case that accused him of copying a Marvin Gaye classic. But first, let's check in with one of the country's least loved essential government agencies, the Internal Revenue Service. The IRS lost almost 20 percent of its workforce over about the past decade, even as the U.S. population increased and the tax code got more complicated. So last year, the IRS received $80 billion in federal funds to improve customer service, upgrade technology, and crack down on tax evasion. As of early March, the IRS also has a new commissioner. His name is Danny Werfel, and he's with us now. Commissioner Werfel, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you, Sasha. It's great to be on. More than half of the $80 billion the IRS is getting is going to enforcement, making sure that all people, but especially wealthy people and large companies, pay their taxes. This has people very nervous about who's going to be targeted and what it means. What's the big picture of what you hope to accomplish and on what timeline? Where we have lost capacity over the years is in our ability to assess high wealth, high income filers. So these are individuals, millionaires, multimillionaires and billionaires. It's large corporations, multinational corporations. It's complex and large partnerships. There are roughly 390,000 of these wealthy and very wealthy filers And right now, the IRS has about 2,600 people to assess. And they're very complicated because these organizations are, you know, multinational or have a variety of different complex structures. The tax returns are complicated. So there is an undercapacity that we have. If we have 2,600 people for 390,000 of these filers, and these are our most complex filings, 
we have to increase our capacity to deal with that. And that involves uh, hiring and then not just auditors, but economists and engineers and data scientists to really figure out and assess uh, for the American people what these wealthy filers owe versus what they're paying and make sure that we're closing that gap. The IRS has pledged not to expand audits for people in businesses making under $400,000 a year. But congressional Republicans have already grilled you on their belief, their fears that this will not be true in practice. And in, in many ways, it's easier to audit less wealthy people because they don't have expensive lawyers and accountants. So how, what reassurance, if any, can you offer people that the, the middle class who are fearful they're about to be more likely to be audited, is that likely to happen? It's not. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm offering uh, the strongest assurance I can that the audit rates that are in place for people earning under $400,000 a year in small businesses, those audit rates are not going up. You know, my message for, for people out there is that if you're a, a mom and pop business, if you are a middle or low income filer, there's no new wave of audits coming. Things are not going to change for you as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act from an enforcement standpoint. How much more tax revenue do you think you can bring in through more aggressive enforcement? You know, a lot. And that is something that you actually can can quantify. There's a, an organization in the government called the Congressional Budget Office that basically looks at how the IRS operates and how much money we bring in when we expand. They assess, for example, that for every dollar of, of enforcement, it returns $6 back to the U.S. Treasury or back to the, the government's bottom line. I think the latest estimate that I saw was that if we were to not do what we're planning to do under the Inflation Reduction Act, we would lose out on roughly $190 billion. And now there's balance in the system because we will, as we grow this capacity, be able to be on equal footing with wealthy filers and be able to really assess what they what they owe. You've been in your job only about two months, but you've already had an April tax season come and go. You know, there have been many complaints about IRS customer service in recent years. During the pandemic, I had to call the IRS. I was on I was on hold for an hour. Any progress in terms of IRS helpline wait times? Significant progress. I mean, this last filing season was night and day versus the previous few years. And what I mean by that is we moved from about a 20 percent rate of answering the phones to historic highs, closer to 90 percent. Our wait time on the phones went from almost 30 minutes last year to about three minutes on average this year. And the reason for that was uh, was the Inflation Reduction Act funds that we're using to start uh, building back our capacity to serve the very complicated tax system that we have. And for example, we hired 5,000 uh, people to staff on our on our call lines and train them up and got them ready to answer those calls that come in every year. Beyond Helpline, any other long-term goals for customer service? Many, and we need to meet taxpayers where they are. Taxpayers have a lot of different preferences for how they want to engage in the IRS and a lot of different means and abilities for how they want to engage with the IRS. Some want to walk into a walk-in center and talk to us in person. And so we have the ability now to reopen walk-in centers that were closed due to underfunding and fully staff them. 
uh, and offer Saturday hours. People want to be able to send us paper forms. We'd rather they file electronically, but when we get that paper, we now need more people to process the paper um, and we're able to hire more people to do so. People want the IRS website to work more effectively. With funds, we can start to build out a world-class customer service set of solutions that taxpayers deserve because going to your local bank or your airline, you have a choice. Paying your taxes is mandatory. People have to come to the IRS. And uh, with the funding provided by the Inflation Reduction Act, we're uh, very committed to improve that customer service since people don't have a choice. They have to come. IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel, thank you for the time. Thank you, Sasha. And now a resolution to a high-profile music copyright case. When your legs don't work like they used to before. That's British pop star Ed Sheeran, and that song is called Thinking Out Loud. After it was released in 2014, Sheeran was accused of copyright infringement by the family of another Ed, Ed Townsend, the co-writer of Marvin Gaye's 1973 classic, Let's Get It On. Darling, I will be loving you. Townsend's family claimed that Sheeran had ripped off Let's Get It On when he wrote Thinking Out Loud. In 2018, a company with a stake in Townsend's estate filed a lawsuit based on that accusation. The trial started last month, and Sheeran claimed the chords in the two songs are building blocks that songwriters everywhere use. During the trial, he even played guitar on the stand to demonstrate. Finally, today, a federal jury ruled that Sheeran did not violate Let's Get It On's copyright. Here's Sheeran on the courthouse steps earlier this afternoon. I'm obviously very happy with the outcome of the case, and it looks like I'm not having to retire from my day job after all. Interestingly, jurors weren't even allowed to hear Let's Get It On in the courtroom. That's because the copyright in question was only for the sheet music, not the finished composition and recording. That feels like a bit of a loss for the jury. It's all definitely a loss for the Townsend estate. But Sasha, our audience has no such restriction. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Palestinians have largely been absent from the historic demonstrations in Israel. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish Israelis are protesting plans by the right-wing government to weaken the courts. NPR's Daniel Estrin explored why Palestinians are rarely in the crowd. Abid Abu Shahada, a Palestinian citizen of Israel, finds the Israeli street protests fascinating. We are living in an historical period of time. The Israeli society never has never witnessed in the past 75 years clash in this magnitude. He's a Tel Aviv city council member working within the Israeli political system to help his own Palestinian Arab community. Arab citizens make up 20% of Israel and face widespread discrimination. He's concerned if the right wing gains powers over the Supreme Court, Arabs could face more discrimination and even be barred from public office. Things are changing very fast. And obviously it's going to affect us. And yet he and his community are not at the street protests against the government. A main sticking point has been the sea of Israeli flags at the protests. What's pushing me away, the magnitude of the Israeli flag. He sees it as the Israeli left trying to assert its nationalism and Zionism. And I don't think I'm welcomed there. On places that I'm not welcomed, I'd rather not go. 
Some Israeli Jewish protesters say they don't want Arab citizens in the streets protesting with them. Let's say to keep it clean. Zohar Dvir is a retired deputy police commissioner. Not, uh, you know, to, to see Palestine uh, flags. Over years of failed peace talks and continued violence, Israelis have seen the center and left lose support when it promotes compromise with the Palestinians. Now, Israeli columnist Anshul Pfeffer says the center-left has found a new narrative motivating the Israeli mainstream to protest, protecting democratic institutions and opposing religious impositions on people's lives. This battle for Israeli democracy has served as that narrative, and it's so powerful and so successful so far. It's forced Netanyahu and his government to back down. So I don't see at least in the next few years, the centrist parties in Israel saying, OK, let's also talk about the Palestinians. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has suspended the judicial overhaul for now, but many in his coalition still support it, and protests are continuing. Palestinian political activist Nur Ode is following the protests from where she lives in the West Bank, where Israel maintains a military occupation, and there is no democracy. There is a small, very brave minority among the protesters who are talking about this reality, about apartheid and about occupation, but they remain a very small minority, unfortunately. A few hundred Jewish Israelis do chant no to occupation every week at the democracy protests in Tel Aviv. Protester Ruti Singer is among them, and she says they're not just the usual hardcore leftists. You see more and more people with these signs, which says, there's no such a thing as democracy with occupation. Abu Shada, the city council member, wants that message to reach more Israelis. The people who are shouting democracy, why aren't you shouting democracy for everyone? When you're going out and asking for liberty and democracy and afraid of what the right might do to you, why aren't you asking and challenging what are you doing to the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza? Why aren't you morally challenging yourself on your role in preserving the occupation? He wishes his Palestinian Arab community could take advantage of this opportunity to mobilize themselves and promote that message, even if they're not joining or aren't made to feel welcome at Israel's historic protests. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, and nice to be with you this evening. Coming up in about 25 minutes, a new bill aimed at keeping kids safer as they use social media. And coming up next, a new novel that tells the story of a family in India that's haunted by a medical mystery. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with Sister Act. And then there were nuns, a divine, feel-good musical comedy through May 14th, lyricstage.com. Celtics return to the court tomorrow night, but in Philadelphia for Game 3 of their second-round playoff series with the 76ers. Tonight, the Red Sox will be looking for a clean sweep over the Toronto Blue Jays as they meet for Game 4 of 4 at Fenway Park, 6-10 start time. By the way, if you're going to Fenway, you better bring a towel to dry off your seat because we're expecting more showers off and on through the next several hours overnight tonight. Clouds with temperatures right about where they are now in the mid to upper 40s. And then for tomorrow, sunshine by the afternoon, highs in the mid 50s. WBUR supporters include the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College. Flexible, rigorous, relevant. Help manage data and insights to shape industry. bc.edu analytics. 
Dave Lombardo is a founding member of Slayer, one of the fastest tempo metal bands ever. Now for a new solo album, the drummer is exploring other percussion traditions. Gongs, timbales, congas, and more on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Abraham Verghese is a physician and an author whose books always reflect some part of his life. His new novel is called The Covenant of Water. It's his first in more than a decade since the bestseller Cutting for Stone in 2009. The Covenant of Water is dedicated to Mariama, his mother. When she was in her 70s, my niece, uh, who is her namesake, asked her, Amachi, what was it like when you were a little girl? And my mother was so taken by that question that she wrote longhand in her wonderful penmanship a hundred-page document, you know, with tales of our relatives and stuff we'd all heard as children growing up, much embellished, of course. That record of generations inspired him. This book is also about the lineage of one family. And about a secret that goes back many generations, which is that members of the family, going back every generation, have drowned, drowned in the most unusual places, uh, shallow puddles, lagoons, lakes, in a land where everybody swims. That land is at the southern tip of India, where Verghese's own family originated. The novel revolves around that unusual drowning condition, a medical mystery that unfolds alongside dramatic changes in technology and politics over nearly a century. Early in the epic, Verghese offers a sort of roadmap for the story that's about to unfold. Here he is reading from the book. The grandmother is certain of a few things. A tale that leaves its imprint on a listener tells the truth about how the world lives. And so, unavoidably, it is about families, their victories and wounds, and their departed, including the ghosts who linger. It must offer instructions for living in God's realm, where joy never spares one from sorrow. A good story goes beyond what a forgiving God cares to do. It reconciles families and unburdens them of secrets whose bond is stronger than blood. But in their revealing, as in their keeping, secrets can tear a family apart. That paragraph almost feels like a mission statement for this book. And some 700 pages later, you can check off almost every phrase of that paragraph as foreshadowing something that happens in the plot. So tell me your rules for what makes a good story. Does it line up with what we hear in that paragraph? Yes, I think that, uh, I mean, not to say that I knew the story entirely going in. So it was very much a process of discovery, but the principles to me remain the same, that stories must offer instructions for living, if you like. Stories must speak to a kind of truth and they, they only resonate if they do that, if they echo with our own challenges, our own lives, and the things that we should have done or could have done, the regrets we have, and the things that we now know we should do. So I think novels are always a form of atonement, and they're also a form of instruction. I've heard other novelists express similar sentiments, but none who are themselves a full-time doctor 
or medical school professor. You work full-time as a doctor. You're on faculty at Stanford Medical School. And every book you've written, both fiction and nonfiction, including this one, have dealt with medical themes. Is there something that writing helps you process or understand or perceive in your day job or vice versa? Yeah, I think the medicine and the writing sort of play off each other. You know, what, what I find is that the writing helps me to process and digest some of the things that are uh, most troublesome that I witness at work. So it's a method of, as Richard Selzer, one of the original doctor writers used to say, it's a way of taking the world in for repairs. Mm. Conversely, I think that um, the craft and discipline of writing has helped me sort of pay more attention uh, and perhaps make more of people's stories. And uh, these days as a consultant physician, it's rare when knowledge is so easily accessible, it's rare that I come to the bedside and make a magical diagnosis mm. when my juniors don't. Uh, if I contribute anything, it's very often because I'm listening to the story in a different way. I have a larger repertoire of stories to match this patient's story with, and it might lead me to ask more questions. So that is sort of the wealth I bring, is a wealth of story that helps me recognize this particular story. I'm imagining here, but it seems to me working in a hospital, particularly through HIV and through COVID, so much must seem arbitrary and meaningless and incomprehensible. And when you write a novel, particularly with medical themes, nothing is arbitrary, nothing is meaningless, everything is there for a reason. And I wonder if that helps provide some kind of order to the chaos of real life. Yeah, I think that that's very true. I think that novels allow me some sort of control uh, in a life where I have very little control. So at least this world, to some degree, not completely. I say to some degree because there is a point where my characters almost dictate what's going to come next. They and, take uh, control of the story. They take control of the story, or at least they tell you, this thing you planned, there's no way I would do it. Get out of here, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> that must be frustrating as an author. No, it's actually delightful. It's the moment that you know you've struck the truth. You've hit the goldmine with this particular character. Yeah. There's one moment late in the book where a character who is a doctor is looking at a brain that is going to be dissected, and the brain belongs to a member of her family. I'm being vague here, so I don't give away plot details. And you write that it looks like any other brain, but it isn't. It holds his unique memories, his stories, his love for his family. As a doctor, do you struggle with bridging that divide between the mechanical elements of a body and the unknowable whole of a person. Absolutely. I think it's uh, sort of the daily struggle. You know, in a sense, we as physicians are acutely aware of mortality. We're surrounded by it. And whereas I think the rest of the world might live in denial of that, we are acutely aware of it. And yet we also have to practice our own form of denial in order to, to go on. Uh, we can't let our empathy gets so overwhelming that we stop making good decisions. So you practice a sort of distancing, but in the dark of the night in your own home, often that all just falls away and you're deeply affected by the thing you just saw. And that's where I think the writing helps to, to make sense yeah. of that, to process that. You know, Life is a terminal condition, as uh, John Irving says, in the world according to Garp. And 
you know, if there's one commonality between life and this novel is that, you know, life ends. And that gives life a particular poignancy. I mean, roses would be weeds if they lived forever. What makes a rose beautiful is that it blooms and then it's gone. Abraham Verghese's new novel is called The Covenant of Water. Thank you so much for talking with us about it. It's my honor. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR, 48 degrees now in the Boston area. Should stay just about that overnight tonight, maybe lose a few degrees. Tomorrow, a cloudy morning, then sunshine, nice afternoon, inching up as far as the mid-50s. The time is 5.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today in federal court in Washington, a blow to the far-right group, the Proud Boys, as four members of the group, including their former leader, were convicted of seditious conspiracy. The verdict is a victory for the Justice Department's prosecution of the rioters who stormed the Capitol. It's Thursday, May 4th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, also ahead. Who is Harlan Crow? We find out more about the real estate mogul and billionaire whose financial deals with the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas have sparked questions about ethics on the high court. Some senators from both sides of the aisle want to restrict to what social media platforms push out to teenagers. Social media is designed to feed them exploitative content, and in many cases, it's age-inappropriate. And WBR's Sharon Brody reflects on the personal meaning of the 1970 novel by Judy Bloom that's now on the big screen. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The leader of the Proud Boys far-right extremist group and three other members of the organization have all been found guilty of seditious conspiracy in a plot to attack the U.S. Capitol and keep Donald Trump in power after his election loss to Democrat Joe Biden. 
A Washington, D.C. jury today convicting Enrique Terrio and the others after hearing testimony from dozens of witnesses. Today, Attorney General Merrick Garland noted it's one of the most serious cases yet to arise from the January 6, 2020 attack on the Capitol. The evidence presented at trial detailed the extent of the violence at the Capitol on January 6th and the central role these defendants played in setting into motion the unlawful events of that day. The charge carries a potential prison term of 20 years. Garland says the Justice Department's investigation has now led to more than 600 convictions of those involved in the attack. President Biden has signed an executive order making it possible for the U.S. to impose sanctions on people in Sudan. As NPR's Tamar Keith explains, violence in Khartoum continues as rival military leaders battle for power. In a signing statement, President Biden said the American people stand with the people of Sudan. Although the order doesn't directly impose sanctions, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says it gives the U.S. Department of Treasury the option to do so if needed. We haven't decided on sanctions. We don't preview sanctions. This EO allows for authorities uh, to look at tools, leverage tools, particularly in, in the case of sanctions, possibly sanctions. But we haven't issued any sanctions. Kirby again called for peace in Sudan and said if the warring factions cared about the people of Sudan, they would stop fighting immediately. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. COVID-19 dropped from the third to the fourth leading cause of death in the U.S. last year. That's according to a new report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. More from NPR's Rob Stein. The U.S. COVID-19 death rate dropped 47 percent from 2021 to 2022, according to the CDC. That means the virus fell from the third leading cause of death in the U.S. to the fourth leading cause of death after heart disease, cancer, and unintentional injuries. COVID had been the third leading cause of death for the first two years of the pandemic. But COVID still claimed more than 244,000 lives in the U.S. in 2022, and the CDC says more than 1,000 people are still dying every week from COVID. Rob Stein, NPR News. The number of Americans filing first-time claims for unemployment benefits took a bump up last week. That remains relatively low by historical standards. Labor Department reporting today initial jobless claims for the week ending April 26 rose to 242,000, a gain of 13,000 from the previous week. On Wall Street, stocks closed lower. The Dow was down more than 200 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. One person is still missing after an explosion at a Newburyport pharmaceutical plant. The blast happened early this morning at Sequence PCI Synthesis. Early this afternoon, crews were able to enter the damaged part of the building where the worker might be. They're now removing debris as they search for the man. Here's WBUR's Yasmin Ammer. The missing worker is one of five who worked the night shift. Officials haven't given his name or exact location when the blast took place. This is the third safety incident at the plant since 2020. Mayor Sean Reardon says the company's operations are halted. We're going to expect a very thorough investigation. As you know, this company has had some incidents in the past, but they've been a great partner to work with here in Newport, and they work closely with the fire department. So this is a, a business that we're aware of. And uh, again, you know, they won't be working anytime soon, but we'll go through that investigation. And hopefully we get some answers about why this happened. Officials say no chemicals have been found in the air or water outside of the building. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. Marlboro Superintendent of Schools is demanding that school bus drivers and the company they work for settle their contract dispute and avert a strike. 
The driver's union has warned the job action could begin Monday. Superintendent Mary Murphy says a strike would affect about 5,000 students in her city and thousands more would be affected in Westboro and Framingham, which use the same bus company. Drivers are asking for better wages and benefits. They say contract talks with North Reading Transportation have stalled. The company says progress has been made in talks over the past few months. Dogs will soon be allowed at outdoor dining patios and beer gardens in Boston. The announcement came today from Boston Mayor Michelle Wu that she'll let the establishments apply to offer dog-friendly spaces. She says it's another step in making Boston a vibrant and family-friendly city. If the city gives the establishment permission, then diners could bring their furry friends with them as soon as June 1st. In the forecast... Pretty chilly out there right now, about 47 degrees. Should stay right about there overnight tonight, give or take a few. And then for tomorrow, clouds in the morning. Should have a bright afternoon. Should be pretty nice tomorrow, inching up as high as the mid-50s. And then over the weekend, won't even need a jacket. Sunny skies with temperatures about 69 to 71 degrees. It's 6.07. WBUR supporters include ECMC Foundation working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. It was another tough day for banks on Wall Street as stock prices plummeted for a number of regional banks. A little later, we'll hear which banks have been hit hard and what that might tell us about the industry overall. First, though, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's name is once again in the headlines with Texas real estate magnate Harlan Crow. this time over a ProPublica investigation that found Crow paid private boarding school tuition for Thomas's grandnephew. Previous reporting by ProPublica in the last month has revealed a real estate deal and years of luxury travel that Clarence Thomas accepted but failed to disclose from Crow. But who exactly is Harlan Crow? Shelly Hagan has done some digging into Crow's background. She covers Texas politics and the economy for Bloomberg, and she joins me now from Dallas. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Anna. So we know that Harlan Crow is an incredibly wealthy businessman, and a lot has been written in recent weeks as well about his collections of historical artifacts, including Nazi memorabilia. But beyond that, what can you tell us about Crow himself, as well as his reputation in the Dallas area community? Yeah, so Harlan Crow is the son of Trammell Crow, who you can see his name in buildings across Dallas. And he was reported to have been one of the largest landlords in the U.S. So Harlan Crow did grow up in a, a privileged family. He was born in Dallas. He, you know, is a prominent figure in the wealthy social circles in Dallas, but you wouldn't necessarily hear his name. He has a lot of influence. He is a big donor. He is a big philanthropist, but he doesn't come out publicly and speak, for example, among lawmakers or anything like that. Hmm. What about his company, Crow Holdings? Can you tell us about it? What does it do and how much is it worth? So Crow Holdings, um, it's basically a real estate empire that manages about $29 billion in assets. It has, for example, holdings in residential real estate properties, commercial real estate, warehouses, um, student housing. So he is very well known in the real estate world. The reason that we're talking about Harlan Crow today is, of course, because of his relationship with Justice Clarence Thomas. What can you tell us about that relationship? How did they come to know each other? How long have they known each other? Yeah, so 
Harlan Crow and Clarence Thomas met about 27 years ago. Um, Harlan Crow was in DC at the time, and he was talking with some executives at the National Center for Policy Analysis, which is a center-right think tank. And while he was speaking with the executives, they told him that Thomas was doing a speaking engagement in Dallas, and Crow, living in Dallas, offered to fly Thomas back home on his private jet. He said he didn't know Thomas at the time, but he said he found that while they were on the jet together and talking, they were actually similar. His exact words were they were simpatico, even though both of these people came from very different backgrounds. Thomas has said he grew up in poverty in Georgia, and of course, Crow grew up in a very wealthy family. In the last month, these revelations about these big money transactions between Harlan Crow and Justice Thomas have prompted increased calls for ethics reform at the Supreme Court. But based on what you know, are there any cases involving Crow that have ended up before the Supreme Court cases where there'd be a reasonable expectation that Justice Thomas would recuse himself? So there actually was one case where one of the companies associated with Harlan Crow did go up before the Supreme Court. And a Bloomberg News colleague actually reported this scoop out a couple weeks ago. But it was a case where a architecture firm was suing a Trammell Crow residential, which is a firm that develops apartment buildings. And they were suing the apartment developer for allegedly misusing its designs, so accusing them of copyright infringement. But the court issued a one-sentence order and didn't have any recusals. So Thomas didn't recuse himself in this case. Based on your reporting on Crow, do you think that his relationship with the Thomas family and Thomas's lack of transparency on some of that relationship, do you think that means it's time to rethink ethics on the Supreme Court? I think there has been a lot of gray area in a lot of the relationships that Thomas had with Crow. For example, it was not his child that Crow donated money for education. It was actually his grandnephew. So in this case, Thomas could say that he didn't have to report that because it wasn't his dependent child. But that's just kind of a gray area where maybe the court's going to have to look closely at and and try and reform so that justices in the future will disclose these. Shelley Hagan covers Texas politics and the economy for Bloomberg. Shelley, thank you. Thank you so much. The mental health epidemic facing U.S. teenagers is motivating an unusual group of senators to join forces. Two Democrats and two Republicans, all parents of young kids or teens, say some first steps in keeping children safer online are limiting access to social media platforms and restricting the kind of content pushed out to teens. The group expects the tech industry to try to defeat their bill. But they say this bill and others show growing momentum in Congress to do something. NPR congressional correspondent Deidre Walsh sat down with the bipartisan group on Capitol Hill and brings us this report. Freshman Alabama Republican Senator Katie Britt is a mom of two teens. She says she heard from parents at her kids' track meet about the negative impact of social media. As I talked to other moms who are trying to deal with this, it tells you um, the, the troubling uncertainty that social media brings into children's lives. She says some apps are only ramping up anxiety among kids. I think all of us can look back to when we grew up and look at the challenges of being you know, a middle schooler or a high schooler. If you add the pressures of social media, you can see how, how quickly that could have a negative impact on children who are trying to learn and grow and explore and be. Britt and another conservative, Arkansas Republican Tom Cotton, 
teamed up with two progressive Democrats, Brian Schatz of Hawaii and Chris Murphy of Connecticut, on a bill they say will help shield kids from harmful content on platforms like Instagram and TikTok. If the four of us can agree on this, you know, who come from very different political and ideological backgrounds, I think there's real hope that this approach can get to the Senate floor and get 60 votes. That's Senator Murphy, who says their bill puts parents in the game to make sure their kids' data isn't accessed and used by tech companies. He saw the upsides for his two sons connecting online during the pandemic. But I've also seen the flip side. I've seen uh, amongst my kids' peers uh, how very quickly these algorithms can drive you to dangerous content, to content that is encouraging self-harm, that's making you feel shameful about your body image. Cotton says these companies make money off of keeping kids addicted. Social media is designed to feed uh, them exploitative content, stuff that's going to attract their eyeballs continuously, and in many cases, it's age inappropriate. And he says this legislation focuses on helping parents gain more control. They just want the same power they have in the real world to extend to the digital world. Schott says it was surprisingly easy for the four to agree on a bill once they zeroed in on the severity of the problem. He pointed out that more than half of teen girls feel persistent despair and the spike in mental health challenges across the board. The legislation says you have to be 13 to get an account, must have your parents' consent, and it also blocks social media companies from using algorithms to distribute content to kids. Here's Schatz. These algorithms are probably more powerful than an adult's brain, but certainly more powerful than a developing child's brain. And their business model is to make kids linger. Some senators say this approach could put more onus on parents and less on the tech companies. Britt says the facts speak for themselves. Data doesn't lie. From 2011 to 2019, we more than doubled um, the the feeling of depression amongst our teens. One in three young women in high school has said that she has considered suicide. And when you think about that, inaction is not an option. While other bipartisan efforts to tackle online safety are more focused on policing content and forcing the social media companies to be accountable, These four senators stress their bill's ban on the algorithm, the driver of the content, is what can protect vulnerable teens. Another key provision is requiring age verification before kids can create accounts and setting up a system for parents to approve their kids signing up. Cotton stresses they take a flexible approach and use technology that companies already use for other applications. They could use third-party contractors of the kind that, say, the VA currently uses or states as politically diverse as Wyoming and California use. The important part is they cannot simply continue to use simple check-the-box attestations or the entry of a birthday, which are, of course, easily evaded. Some civil liberties groups argue collecting more data from parents about their kids could add to privacy concerns. Cotton dismissed those arguments. The data we're talking about here is your birthday, your birthday stuff that many people put online voluntarily or that government agencies at your local, state, and federal level all have access to and know, and your parent-child relationship. That's it. Tech companies maintain they already have tools in place to police dangerous content for kids and say they constantly reevaluate them. A spokesperson for Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, told NPR that research from parents, teens, and academics shapes the protections they have in place, and they will work with policymakers on these issues. 
Congress doesn't have much of a track record passing legislation that regulates or restricts tech companies, but Schatz thinks the country is at a tipping point. Yes, it's true that every year someone proposes something in terms of tech policy, and every year the tech industry kills it. I do think this time is different because parents, and even children, are standing up and saying enough is enough. In the last week, two more bipartisan bills have been unveiled in the Senate to boost safety measures for kids online. They take aim at making the social media companies more accountable through new regulations on data collection, oversight by federal agencies, and bans on advertising. These four senators say the more, the merrier. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, The Capitol. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30, as big car makers throw their hats into the electric vehicle ring, EV startups are struggling to gain traction. The mainstreaming of EVs coming up on Marketplace. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Summer Term at Boston University. With a wide range of courses in math and science, including pre-med offerings in biology, chemistry, neuroscience, and physics. BU also offers over 50 math courses, statistics, calculus, probability, linear algebra, differential equations, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. Stocks closed lower for a fourth day. The Dow lost almost nine-tenths of a percent. S&P fell about three-quarters of a percent, and the Nasdaq was down just about a half percent. A Natick-based clean technology startup backed by Amazon is opening a factory in Devons. Electric Hydrogen plans to build what it calls the world's largest electrolyzer factory there. It expects to hire some 70 full-time workers. The company is aiming to decarbonize the production of hydrogen energy on a large enough scale to support the manufacturing products such such as steel and fertilizer. It's 619. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. Listen to Violation, a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project, a story about two families and an unthinkable crime that's bound them together for decades. You can hear Violation wherever you get your podcasts. In sports, the Red Sox and Blue Jays wrap up their four-game series at Fenway tonight. First pitch happened just about 10 minutes ago. Red Sox have taken the first three matchups. Tonight's pitchers are Brian Bayo for the Sox and Kevin Gossman for the Jays. Celtics' playoff series moves to Philadelphia for Game 3 tomorrow night. Celtics and 76ers are tied at one game apiece. In the forecast, 48 degrees now. Look for clouds overnight tonight. Temperatures staying in the 40s. Then for tomorrow, overcast skies to begin with. Bright skies for the afternoon. Temperatures in the mid-50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet School's Next Generation, a showcase of student talent and the best Boston arts education. Citizens Bank Opera House, May 19th, bostonballet.org. And Catchlight Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com.
New York is rolling back some of the bail reforms passed in recent years. Governor Kathy Hochul has said the state will keep repeat offenders off the streets. But activists say reforming bail laws makes the criminal justice system more just, and they say it reduces overcrowding in jails. A similar debate is playing out in several cities and states across the country. NPR's Jasmine Guards reports. Several years ago, New York passed bail reform, which, among other things, ended cash bail for most misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies. The idea was stop punishing poor people who can't afford to post bail while they're waiting for trial. Donna Lieberman is the executive director of the NYCLU. It was a huge step in the right direction to right decades of massive wrongs that harmed overwhelmingly people of color. But as crime rose during the pandemic, some detractors blamed bail reform. They said people who should have been detained until trial were back on the streets committing more crimes. Rafael Mangual is a head of research at the Manhattan Institute. While the entirety of the crime increase in 2020 and 21 can't be laid at the feet of bail reform, I think it's very clear that the reform did contribute to a a substantial enough decrease in public safety. Not everyone agrees. There have been studies more recently that show that bail reform has not had the impact of increasing crime locally. Crystal Rodriguez is policy director at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Rodriguez says excessive media coverage of some crimes and political opportunism have led to the incorrect impression that overall crime is rising. And that has led to the recent bail reform changes in New York. Some of those involve judges. They still can't set bail for most misdemeanor and nonviolent charges, but they have more leeway on what restrictions they can impose for other charges. Rodriguez suspects that means more folks going to jail. I think the removal of this language may influence judges to lean more heavily into pretrial detention for the cases where bail and pretrial detention are still permissible. The charges have led to discontent on both sides of the political spectrum. Criminal justice reform advocates worry this will further target poor people, especially people of color. Conservatives say it doesn't do enough. In recent years, several states have attempted to change their bail laws, and it's been controversial. One of those states is Illinois, where reforms are now being challenged in the Supreme Court. Rafael Manguel says a more effective change would be for judges to set bail by considering the public safety risk posed by someone awaiting trial. Right. How many times have they been arrested in total? How many prior convictions do they have? What are the nature of those prior convictions? How old are they? All of those things together are more predictive than is this person charged with murder or is this person charged with a nonviolent misdemeanor? Again, Crystal Rodriguez from John Jay College says... There has been a shift or a backlash um, to some of the criminal justice reform policies that have been implemented, bail reform being one among them. She says it's unclear how the change in New York will play out, but it speaks to a larger change in attitudes nationwide towards reforming the criminal justice system. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York.
This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The 1970 novel, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, has landed on lots of bestseller lists over the years and lots of banned book lists, too. Well, now the tale of the 11-year-old sixth grader Margaret Simon navigating the simple joys and complicated changes of life has become a movie. After she watched the film adaptation, WBUR Sharon Brody unearthed her own diary from a long time ago when she was 11. She began to reflect on her introduction to Margaret. One afternoon back in the 1970s, my mom handed me the novel. I was about finished with sixth grade. I was what my frenemies called undeveloped, and somehow I knew the book demanded my immediate attention. I read, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, three times in a row, and then loaned it to my friends who loaned the book to their friends, and on and on, an endless chain of girls trying to help each other decipher, well, everything. The book taps into a blend of innocence and urgency, the beautiful and perilous passage that is sixth grade. And it marked the first time I had ever experienced a work of art that seemed to have sprung to life after spying on me. With every page I turned, I felt more convinced. I might be normal, and I am not alone. Early in my sixth grade diary, I scribbled, In math, we had a test. It was easy. You know, I sort of think I need a bra. Early in the novel, Margaret says, I just told my mother I want a bra. Please help me grow, God, you know where. Judy Bloom gifted the world with a romp that made me laugh as, like Margaret, I muddled my way through elevendom, toggling between childhood and the mysteries that lay beyond. From my diary, I got a bra. I didn't ask her anything. From my diary, a few sentences later, as bra reality sunk in. I really can't figure out what I felt like. Sort of depressed and sort of happy and sort of foolish and, well, I just felt weird. It is tight and sort of itchy. Preach, little me, preach. The fictional Margaret survives the ordeal of the puberty movie. So did I. In Orange Felt Tip, I told my diary, a lot happened today. The sixth grade girl saw a movie about growing up. Then we talked about it. I had no questions. What strikes me now, though, is how much the culture has changed. I lucked out with great parents, but back in the day, most kids did not get accurate, non-judgmental information at home or at school about the proverbial facts of life. That meant a lot of girls didn't merely get a kick out of, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret. They needed the book. It was an education. It was validation. The world was a straight-talk desert, and this novel served as the oasis. For more recent generations, Judy Bloom's book and the excellent new film feel more optional. Which is good. It's progress. As a society, we have inched forward from automatically saddling girls with shame because they have bodies. Still, a small part of me wishes today's fans could experience the thrill of being in the first wave of tweens to join Margaret for that bold leap into polite people don't talk about these subjectsville. Or maybe I should just take the win. After all, 11-year-old me knew how to pivot toward victory. One spring day of my sixth grade year, I grabbed a green ballpoint pen and scrawled these words. 
If something happens to me and they read my diary, I'm afraid they won't have much to say about it. I do not lead a very interesting life. I learned a new way to jump rope. Sharon Brody is the host of WBUR's Weekend Edition. You can read her essay and many more at WBUR.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clouds should hang in there tonight. Temperatures are right about where they are now in the mid-40s. For tomorrow, the last of the clouds in the morning, then sunshine later on, a nice afternoon in the mid-50s for a high. Over at Fenway Park, the Red Sox are leading Toronto 1-0 in the first inning. It's the final game of their four-game set. The time is 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now.